Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Last week, we heard from Pastor Chris as he went over verses 15 through 23 in the book of Ephesians. This week, Pastor Brian starts us on chapter 2 of the same book, going through verses 1 through 10. Now, with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Brian. So we are in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. We're going to be going through verse 10. Um, Before we get into that, though, I actually want to bring up something that I think we need to be praying for. And if you guys aren't aware, uh, the church in Canada is currently not allowed to gather. Um, So while we have freedoms uh, here that we can still gather uh, in the midst of this pandemic, in Canada they cannot. And there's actually pastors who are being fined, and someone has actually been put into jail for gathering. And so they, they went to his church, and after he preached, they jailed him. I believe he's been in jail now for two weeks uh, simply for preaching a sermon. Um, So real quick, I want to pray for that and not just Canada, but really the global church for uh, any of the other struggles that the church is having uh, throughout this pandemic and in, you know, ministering to its people. Um, There's a lot of struggles with that. And so I want to pray for that real quick. God, we pray that you uh, embolden your church, you strengthen your church, that the the people that are walking faithfully to you, God, that you would um, let them not lose heart, God. You would encourage them to continue despite any persecution that may come, despite any struggles that may come, God, that you would embolden them to continue preaching your word, God, because um, what the world needs to know in the midst of any trials and struggles that we go through, God, is that the true answer is in you. That, God, this virus can kill our body, but... God, you can kill our body and our soul. You are the one who can condemn us to hell, and so you are the one we should fear. And so, God, I pray we can deliver that message not just to the current church body, God, but that we can deliver that message to the world, that they would know you are the one who has come to save them. We thank you in your name. Amen. Um, So let's go ahead, and I'm going to just start by reading through the passage. And so we are in Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he, for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, as the result, not as the result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so what we see in this is kind of a a reiteration of what we already saw in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, we saw salvation is from God alone. The Father calls, the Son redeems, and the Holy Spirit seals. And so it was kind of a a perspective of our salvation from God and from knowing God. And so what Paul is now doing is he's showing us the perspective of salvation from ourselves. So we're looking at human anthropology. Why is it that we needed God to do what he did? Where were we at, and what has God done to bring us out of that? 
And so he's going over kind of a similar topic. We're still talking about the grace of God. We're still talking about God saving us. But what he's going to show us is that he saved us from what we once were. He has now brought us to where we are, and he's doing this for a purpose. It is not just um, so God can save us and then just leave us and wait to wait till we die to go to heaven. But God actually has a purpose in saving us here on this earth to act according to his will. And so we're going to look at our a different perspective of the same topic of our salvation. And we're going to look at why it is that we as human beings needed Jesus to do what he did. Why it is that we needed God to do what he did to redeem us. And it's because of where we once were. It's because of our nature that God had to do what he did. And so we read again, in, starting at verse 1. It says, And you were dead in your trans- trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We really need to understand this about ourselves. We were children of wrath. We were dead in our transgressions. And when it says dead there, it means dead. A lot of people look at this and they say, well, you know, we were mostly dead, but we still had some ability to respond. But that's not what scripture tells us over and over again. It tells us you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And dead people don't respond to life. Dead people are dead. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is it that made us dead? What state were we in? What brought us to that place? And so what we need to do is we need to look back at Adam and Eve. Why are we born dead in our spirit? Well, it's because we have a federal headship in Adam. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. When Adam fell, we all fell. And so that there is no one that is innocent because we are born of Adam. And in Romans 5, 13 through 14, it says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And so because Adam sinned, we are all in sin. We are not born sinless. We are born in sin. That is our nature. That is what we are. We are sinners. And so there's no one who is innocent, not even children, because we are all born in Adam. None of us can escape that. And what we do when we kind of try to say, well, am I really dead? Is we make the same mistake Eve did. Eve believed Satan when he said, you you surely will not die, will you? And we look at scripture and we say, well, we weren't really dead, were we? And we make the exact same mistake. The truth is that we are dead in our sins and trespasses because we are in Adam. And so we are either in Adam in our sin or we are in Christ. And there is no middle ground. There is no neutral starting point. We are born into sin. Matthew 12, 35 says, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure that which is evil. You and I, when before Christ, what we were was evil. And I think even as Christians, a lot of us don't think that way. We don't think of ourselves as having been evil. But what we need to understand when we look at good and evil is what do we define as good and evil? Are we coming up with the definitions ourselves or are we relying on scripture to define it for us? And so what we look at what is good in scripture is what is glorifying to God. And that which is evil is that that does not glorify God. And so you and I can go out into this world and we can be philanthropists. We can be doing all the things that we read in scripture of the deeds that God has told us to do. But if we're not doing them for the glory of God, we are doing it for an evil and wicked purpose. 
This is why scripture tells us that all of our deeds are as filthy rags before God because they're all tainted by our sin. We don't live our lives outside of Christ for the glory of God. And so we can do good things. We can care for the homeless. We can care for the widow, for the orphan. We can do so much good things in this world according to man's standard. But those things are still evil in the sight of God because we're not doing it for his glory. And that is what is good and evil. Good is what glorifies God and evil what is, is that that does not glorify God. And that is the standard we must understand. And when you think of it that way, that's when you can really understand that, I, oh, I was really dead in my sins and trespasses because I was not honoring God. I was honoring myself or I was honoring other men. We were not honoring God. But the world wants you to think that people are generally good. The world wants to convince you that you're a good person and really no one's truly evil. No one's born evil. It's really just the circumstances that led them to do the bad things. And so everyone can be fixed by simply reaching out to them and, and really kind of getting them out of their circumstances. And so you see this in pop culture and movies and things like that, where the bad guys are always relatable now. No one's evil for the sake of evil. Everyone who is evil is going to be able to be turned around. And in a lot of the films, you see that the, the bad guy is the person you can relate to. And maybe at the end, they join the good side. And there's really no one evil in the story. That's man's view of man. No one's truly evil. We're all good at heart. We just simply need to fix the circumstances of the world and everything will be perfect. But that's not what scripture tells us. And what we do when we think like this as Christians is we begin to doubt things that we read in scripture. Because if we have a human understanding of our abilities, if we have a human understanding of our will, what we'll do is we'll read things that is in scripture and we'll agree with the world on those passages. And so some of the most difficult passages to read are in the Old Testament, where God has commanded Israel or other peoples to do certain things. And so what I've seen a lot is atheists will point out to Christians, they'll say, well, in the Old Testament, God told Israel to destroy all the people of that land. That's genocide. Do you promote genocide? And so what they, what they want you to think is, oh, something wrong happened here. There was something immoral that happened. And I'm, what they're saying is, I am more moral than God. God was immoral for doing that action, and you're immoral if you agree with God. But what they don't realize, what they're missing in this, is the state of man. They don't have a, a biblical understanding of the state of man. No one that God had killed was innocent. Each and every one of them, down to the child, was a sinner. And God has the ability to give life, and God has the ability to take it back up on his own. It's all in God's timing. And the thing is that God doesn't normally do this supernaturally. He does it naturally. And so when we read the Old Testament, we see that when armies came to destroy Israel, God said, I sent those armies to destroy you. I am the one who sent the armies after you because of your evilness, because of your wickedness. And so when God sends, in, sends Israel into those lands to wipe out the people within the promised land to take it over, one, the people weren't innocent, and two, God has the right to take life. And so if he does command them to go do it, it is not sin for them to follow through with what God has said to do because they are being the hands of God in the world. God is the one who determines when life is able to be taken. When we look at things like the death penalty today, it's the same thing. God has said, if they have done this, they deserve for their life to be taken. And then the world changes that to say, well, no, that's evil because you're murdering a murderer. No, God has said they have forfeit their life. And so when we take on the world's way of thinking, we make God an, a moral monster. But God is the one who defines morality. God is the one who defines what is good. God is the one who defines what is evil. And so you and I cannot think the way the world thinks. And we once did. We were once all thinking like that. And maybe some of us even still think that way now and need to repent of that. 
because this is the reason we need Christ, because of where we were. If we continue to think that we are good within ourselves, what we're saying is I could have done it on my own. We're negating what God has done because we're saying I am good and I don't need God to save me. And that is not the case. We needed God to do what he did. And so God is just in punishing people who are sinners. God is just in punishing those who are wicked and evil. And we have to, again, remember, there is no neutral ground. You're either for Christ or against Christ. And if you're for Christ, you are doing what is good. And if you're against Christ, you are doing what is evil in the sight of God. And so do you think of yourself for Christ as someone who was evil? Or do you think of yourself as someone who was mostly good, who just needed a little bit more saving? The truth is we were all evil at heart, each and every one of us. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, it says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to, the, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. And so God's not just looking at the actions. He's looking at our heart. He sees our hearts and he says, those hearts are wicked. And then we turn around and say, well, no, not really. I'm doing good things, aren't I? And so we, we try to negate what God has told us is true of ourselves. And that is what the world does. The world wants to negate what God has told us is true of our nature. And it, we cannot think that way. And so Paul is clear here in verse 2. He says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You all walked in this way. Not one of us was born in Christ. We were born in sin and we came to Christ. And so we, we all once walked in this way. We all once sinned the way the world sinned. We all once thought the way the world thought. We all once held to the prince of the power of the air by his influence and lived according to that. In scripture, uh, the, these ideologies and the ways of thinking of the world is called fortresses. They're mighty fortresses that we're battling against. Second Corinthians 10 verse three through five says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, in this passage, we have not talked about the actions we're doing. We're simply talking about our thoughts. We're warring against the fortresses of the way the world has taught us to think and making every thought captive to Christ. Why? Because we are sinners to the core of ourselves. We are sinners to the heart. We are sinners of the mind. This is why when Christ came, he told them that even thinking lustfully is the sin of adultery because we are sinners even to the heart. The world doesn't want you to think this way, but that is the truth. That is what scripture reveals to us. And so we once lived according to the prince of the power of the air. The same way Satan deceived Eve is the way he deceives us now. You surely aren't dead, are you? You, you are surely worthy of being like God, aren't you? That is what the devil wants you to think because he wants to pull you away from the grace of God. He wants you to think the way he thinks. He wants you to think the way the world thinks. Satan is the one who thought himself worthy of being like God and so rebelled against God. And so now he's telling you, you are worthy of being like God. Rebel against him. You don't need to follow him. That is the way the world thinks. The world wants to be their own God. The world wants to be their own savior. 
but we are not our own savior. We are not our own God. We are followers of Jesus Christ. And so we were once this way. We were once sons of disobedience, those who follow after the ways of Satan. I do want to make one distinction here, though. Scriptures never tell us that we are slave to Satan. They call us sons of Satan. Jesus called the Pharisees the sons of Satan, not the sons of Abraham. But it never says we are slave to Satan. And what I've seen a lot of Christians do when they do bad things, oh, is that devil. He's the one that did it. No, you are the one that did it. You are the one who is slave to sin, not to Satan. And so we can't pass off the blame of our sin to Satan, even if he is there influencing the world, even if he is there to whisper into us the, the philosophies of this age. Ultimately, you are still the one responsible for your sin because you are not slave to him. You are simply obedient to him of your own will. And so we all once walked in this way. Verse three, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. None of us can escape this. All of us were deeply wicked. All of us were deeply evil in all of our ways, in our actions, in our deeds, in the thoughts of our mind, in pursuing the things we sought to pursue. All of it was wicked. Not one thought you had was good outside of Christ. Not one deed you did was worthy of God. So we needed Christ to come in to save us. There's a reformer named John Bradford, and it said that he saw some prisoners being led to execution. And when he saw this, he said to himself, there but for the grace of God go I. And the sentiment of that is that if it weren't for God, we would all deserve death. None of us could escape it. And so that is where we were. Deep in sin, buried in the evil thoughts of our hearts and mind, far from God, pursuing after our own lust, pursuing after our own flesh, even our minds were not safe from this. We were corrupt down to the very heart. So that every fiber of your being lived not for God, but for yourself, lived not for the glory of God, but for yourself. And so we needed Christ to come in. We needed the mercy of God. We needed Father and Son and Holy Spirit to work together in unison to bring about our salvation because there is by no other name that we can be saved but him. It was necessary for him to save us. And so we were once there, but we are now somewhere new. Verse four, but God being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We all once were those children of wrath, and we don't become children of Christ on our own. He does it for us. Why? Because he is rich in mercy and he is rich in love. Have you ever thought that God has mercy not just on believers, but on unbelievers as well? Have you ever thought that God had mercy on you before you were in Christ? Because you were deserving of death from the beginning. You were deserving of the punishment from the very first time. Yet God had mercy on you, enduring your sin for the sake of the cross, enduring your unrighteousness for the sake of his glory. So that way, when the time came, when he called you to himself and you would come to him, those sins were put on the cross with Christ. So that way, what you had once done still received the punishment it deserved. But that punishment was taken up by Jesus Christ so that way you could live the righteousness that he lived. 1 John 4, verse 9 through 10 says this, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that he might live 
so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so God's love and mercy were displayed for us on the cross. That is where God showed, I am for you. I am your savior. I am the one calling you out to be mine. And we all know John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the love of God displayed for you. That while you were deep in your sin, you were deep in your transgressions, you were dead in your transgressions, unable to respond to God in faith, that he died for you while you were still a sinner, while you could not respond, while you were not even around yet, he died for you. Romans 5 verse 6 It says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so you were ungodly, you were dead, and you are made alive in Christ. It is by his doing, because of where you were, because you could not respond, God did it for you. By grace, you have been saved. And so when God chose you, it was the grace of God, the Father. When Christ redeemed you, it was the grace of God. When the Spirit showed you, it was by the grace of God. He is giving to you something you did not deserve. You deserved death. You deserved punishment. You deserved hell. But all of that wrath was placed on Jesus Christ. And what you received was something so far beyond what you deserved. You received the grace of God. You received the propitiation for your sins. You received his righteousness. You received his holiness. You received his love and mercy. And I think a lot of times we can, we can hear that and we can understand it, but it oftentimes leaves us thinking, what next? What next? What am I doing here now? If I am saved, what am I doing? And so Paul continues in verse 6. He says, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. And so he raised us up. Again, this is referring to when, we, when Christ died, we died. When Christ rose, we rose. When Christ ascended, we ascended. Because he did it, we did it. And so since Christ was obedient to the Father, we now have the ability through the Holy Spirit to be obedient to God the Father. God did this for us. And he gives us this new life, but he doesn't just give us life. He gives us the ability to be partakers of his glory. He gives us the ability to work within his kingdom for his glory where once your mind and your heart and your soul were bent towards yourself, now by the power of the Holy Spirit, they are bent towards Christ. Now by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can go out and you can glorify God with all that you do. And it really does mean all that you do. It's not just coming to church every Sunday. It's not just reading your Bible, but it is every action you take, every thought you have, you're bringing captive towards Christ. So that way you honor God even in your thoughts, even in your motives, you're honoring God. And so we are placed in these heavenly places with Christ. And I think a lot of times we as Christians can be so heavenly minded. We, we know the promises God has for eternity that we read heavenly and we take off the L-Y and we just think of heaven. But those heavenly places are not in heaven. Those heavenly places are here on earth. Um, and we know this because Paul uses this phrase multiple times in Ephesians. And one of those times is in Ephesians chapter 6. And he's talking about the armor of God. So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 through 12. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, uh, sorry, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so it is in these very heavenly places that we are warring against Satan. We are warring against the ideologies and the thoughts of this world. And so what God is doing with us is he's bringing us into his kingdom and he's seating us with Christ and he's saying, I'm going to give you a foreshadowing of heaven. I'm going to give you an example of my grace. I'm going to give you an example of the glory that is to come. So that way, as you go into this world, you can wage through the war. You can endure the trials. You can endure the work that I have planned for you because you are seated in these heavenly places where you can see the glory of God here before you go into eternity. And so what we must recognize is that God has promises not just for heaven for us, but he has promises for us here on this earth. The passage we open up with is the Great Commission. Christ has authority in heaven and on earth, not just in heaven. So we have a role to play here on this earth. That's why we are seated with Christ in these heavenly places. And it tells us that we are going into these ages to come. And so one of those ages is going to be eternity. There are ages in eternity after the return of Christ. But some of those ages are before Christ's return. We're in one of those ages now. And we're called to be obedient to Christ here in this age, seated in those heavenly places, because we have the grace of God carrying us through it. And I want to read to you guys a passage out of Isaiah 65, because I think a lot of times Christians have a very pessimistic view of the kingdom of God. I think a lot of times we read the New Testament and we kind of forget a lot of the Old Testament and the promises that God actually has for his kingdom, for what is to come for it. And so in Isaiah 65, we're going to start at verse 17. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things which will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in, the, in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. And I'll stop there for a second. And I think most people hear this, and they hear the new heavens and the new earth and no weeping and no crying, and they think, oh, that's talking about that after the turn of Christ. That's talking about eternity. That's talking about heaven. Well, let's see what it says continuing on. It says, no longer will there be an infant in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth um, will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So there's still death here. This, has, this cannot be heaven, because there is death. This cannot be heaven because people are still dying. But look how glorious this is. Living to 100 and you die young at 100. <laughs> right? Right now we make it to 100. We're like, wow, that's amazing. You made it to 100. Congratulations. And there's a day that God has promised where people die at 100 and people think, what was wrong with that person? How did they die at such a young age of 100? And so he continues on. He says, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will the days of my, be of my people and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. This is a promise of God for something that we will see. Well, maybe not us specifically, but his people will see. And so what this is referring to is another age to come. We're in an age, but there's another age to come. And there was ages before us that Christians have lived through 
And God has promised us that this kingdom will grow, this kingdom will expand, and we'll eventually see a day on this earth like that. And I, again, I think so many Christians have become pessimistic about their thinking of the kingdom. They think it's diminishing. They think it's shrinking. They look at the modern age and they say, look at how the people respond to God. But we have to remember, when we look back at the apostles, there was just a few men in an upper room with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, there were less people on the earth than now profess Christ. The kingdom has expanded. And it's not always an easy ride. There are ups and downs. There are ebbs and flows to the kingdom. And God is doing this with intention. One of the things we see throughout Scripture is that God likes to defeat his enemies. And so we know that Christ is reigning. Christ is ruling, and he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And he says he will be sitting there until all of his enemies are placed as a footstool for his feet. And so what God is doing in this age and in every age is he is defeating those principalities and powers of this age. And so God, for a time, can allow them to grow. So when he finally defeats them, we look at it and go, wow, look at what God has done. Look at the new enemy he has defeated. Look at what he has done for his people in this age. And so there are ages to come where we are continually being shown the grace of God here on the earth as a foreshadowing of how great it will be one day in heaven. And so we have to have this mind of the kingdom. We have to be kingdom-minded knowing that there is something for us to do here and now. Because when we gaze at heaven, we would neglect to do the work that God has called us to do. And so when God brought us from where we were to where we are, he did so with a purpose. He did so so we would walk in the works that he has prepared for us for his kingdom. We are not here to navel gaze. We are not here to simply wait out for our death. We are here to do the work of the kingdom of God. And so continuing in verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And so we again see this reiteration that we are saved by grace through faith. It is all of God, and we have to recognize that it is all of God because of what he's about to go into. He's about to talk about us building the kingdom, and we cannot think that we build the kingdom of our own ability. And so it has to be all of God. When we try to add our works to God's grace, we nullify what God has done. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. We can never look at the work of our hands and think, this has built up to my salvation. We can never look at the work that God has called us into and think, this is for my glory, or this is something proving myself. No, even the works that we do, it's all of God. God empowers us to do it by the Holy Spirit for his glory. And so he's giving us this again and again and again to make it known to us, you did not save yourself. He's about to talk to us about our works. And he wants to know that you cannot boast in your works. God has called you into them, but you cannot even boast in them. When we do great things for God on this earth, we're doing it for God, not for our own name. When we help to build his kingdom on this earth, we're not doing it so that way people will know our name thousands of years down the line. We're doing it so that we will know God's name thousands of years down the line. And so we cannot boast in anything because it was all of God, every bit of it, every part of it. You contributed nothing. Even faith is a gift of God, so that way God receives all the glory. And this is something God has done throughout Scripture. When he pulled Israel out of Egypt, it was all of God. They did nothing to get themselves out. God sent the plagues. God called them out. God was the pillar of fire and the cloud to lead them. 
God is the one who drowned the Pharaoh and his armies in the seas. God did it. And they knew that God did it. We see this with Gideon, where God goes, Gideon says, your armies are too great. They're going to think you did this. I need to diminish your numbers so that way when you defeat your enemies, they know that I did it. And so God diminishes them to 300 and sends them out. So that way the enemies and the people of God know that God did it. And he did this with Christ, sending Christ to die on the cross for us. We had no involvement in that. We had no say in it. God did it for us. This is why for by grace you have been saved through faith, because God is the one who did it. And he did it so that way you could walk in obedience. Once again, when Christ died, you died. When Christ rose, you rose. When Christ ascended, you ascended. And because Christ was obedient, you can be obedient by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus Christ said, I am sending to you a helper, a helpmate, someone to be with you to the end of the age, to help you with this. This is why in the Great Commission, he can say, go therefore and preach. Because God is the one who does it. God is the one who empowers you and enables you to walk in the things he has prepared you for. And so in verse 10, he goes, he says, for, the, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is the purpose of you being saved on this earth. We have to ask ourselves, if, if, if the whole purpose is heaven, why couldn't God save me and then just send me straight to heaven? Because God has works prepared for you. And we need to think about this correctly as well. You see, God didn't create the times we're in for us. God created the, us for the time that we are in. And so when we as Christians, we, we, look, we can look at that passage in Isaiah about the future and think, why couldn't God have made me then? That sounds so much easier. That sounds so much more pleasant. Or we can look at the past and think, you know, we can romanticize things of the past and say, why couldn't I be born then? Wouldn't it have been so much better to be born at that time? And what God is saying, no, I have created these works. I have prepared them beforehand. And I have placed you in this time to walk in those good works. God has created you for this time to do as he has called you to do. Acts 17, 26 through 28 says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as, he, as even some of you of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. So God has placed you here for a purpose. You weren't born here by accident. You weren't born into your family by accident. You weren't born into this time period by accident. All of it was with intent so that God could call you in this time to be obedient to him in this time to build his kingdom in this time. And so he's prepared these works for you that you would walk in them. And again, being humans, we oftentimes just think so shallowly about the, the perspective of eternity. We, we think of it in terms of just what we see around us. We don't see the big picture oftentimes. And so many people can say, well, what's the point? What's the use? Isn't the world turning away from God? Isn't the world coming to an end? Why should I strive to be obedient to God? Isn't it all in vain? But scripture assures us our work is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is, is not in vain in the Lord. If you want to see someone who seemed like they worked in vain, look at Jeremiah. God sent him out and said, no one's going to listen to you, but go preach anyways. 
No one's going to pay attention to any of the words you say. Go say them. And so we could say, "What not that in vain? Why did God send him out if no one was going to respond? But it's because he was building his kingdom. He was preparing for it with Jeremiah. And so we have the book of Jeremiah to see what God was doing then, and we can know what God is continuing to do in the future. And so the same is true for you. The kingdom of God came with Christ. He brought it when he came. And so we are part of his kingdom, and we do not labor in vain. Everything we do for God is something that is steadfast. It is immovable. And I think, again, we a lot of times we kind of want this, um, the kingdom to kind of fall from the sky. We just want it to be here. We want it to all be suddenly. We want it all to be shown to us. We want an instant gratification of the kingdom. But scripture never defines the kingdom as something that comes in suddenly. It never defines the kingdom as something that we just see appear in all of its glory immediately. And this is actually what we see of the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. Starting at verse 31. It says, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is, a, this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The kingdom of God is like that mustard seed, one of the smallest of the seeds planted in the ground that slowly becomes this massive plant. And you don't plant it and come in the next day and it's this massive tree. It takes time. It grows slowly. And you might even have to prune and work with it to get it to grow larger. He continues, he says, he spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which his woman took and hid in three pecks and flour until it was all leavened. You don't put leaven in a bread and it just poofs up into a big ball instantly. It takes time. The leaven grows through the lump, and this is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is in this world. We are part of that kingdom, but the kingdom grows slowly. And so we can know that God has great plans for it because he has told us the final glories of the kingdom before he hands it over to the Father. He says, at the end, it will look like this. I have made these promises of the kingdom, and it will come to pass. And so we have to have this long-term view of the kingdom. Really, when we look at it, we are still in the baby stages of the kingdom of God. It's been 2,000 years, and it's still early on, because we are nowhere near the images that the Bible gives us of the fullness of the kingdom. And so we have to trust in that. We have to know God is not leaving us to work in vain. We have to know God has promised us the kingdom, that it is here, that it is growing, it is expanding. And what he's doing in that is he's showing us the heavenly places. He's showing us the glory that is to come. And so we patiently work as God has called us, knowing that the work we do is not in vain. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And what that's saying is that this kingdom cannot be shaken. It is here and it grows and it will not diminish. When you do work for the kingdom, that work remains. And God is a consuming fire burning away all the impurities. You can think of it like someone refining gold. They refine the gold and what remains is the pureness of the gold and all the impurities are burned away. That is what God is doing with his kingdom throughout the ages. That is what God has always done with his kingdom. He's refining it, he's building it, and he's using us to do it. He's prepared these works for us to walk in. And so when we labor for Christ, when we labor for the kingdom, and we set those stones and we build that, that building, 
What God is doing, he's saying that will remain. You might not see much of the change, but your work is not in vain. I have called you to be obedient to me, to walk according to my ways, to do as I have called you to do. And the things you set up in Christ will not be torn down. And as God consumes this world in fire by purging it, what will remain is the kingdom. And so we labor not in vain in Christ. This is why Christ tells us, therefore, go and preach. Because the kingdom is here. God has the authority. It is all his. Heaven and earth is his. And he is redeeming it for himself. And so he has called you, therefore, go and preach and teach people to be obedient to him. We must walk in obedience in every age, wherever we are placed by God. Because by doing this, we do the will of God. By doing this, we glorify God. And so we build his kingdom not for our glory, but for his glory. We live not for ourselves, but we live for him because he brought us from where we were, dead in our trespasses. And he has brought us to where we are, children of God, children of mercy. And so let's be obedient children in that mercy. You might ask yourselves, what does this mean for the time we live in? Don't we see kind of this diminishment of the church? Don't we see the world going to hell? Look at the ideologies that are present in our societies. Look at how crazy it's getting. I mean, I opened up in prayer about the church in Canada being persecuted. Whoever thought that was going to happen? And so how do we think of that in light of what we've just read? Well, once again, it's like Gideon. God is allowing the principalities to grow and seem like they're in charge. But what he wants to do is he wants to defeat it, and he wants us to know that he did it. And so there can be ages that God reduces the church for the sake of his glory, and other ages where God expands the church for the sake of his glory. And so we are simply in an age where there's diminishment, not because overall there will be diminishment, because God is going to do a mighty work in this world, and he is going to deliver his people even from this age. And so we walk in obedience, and we do that by loving our families, teaching them of God, being active in our societies. We cannot be ashamed. We cannot be afraid. Even if persecution comes, we must walk in obedience, teaching obedience to Christ, to people of all the nations of the earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all that you have done for us. When, when we think of ourselves, God, we are so sinful in nature so much so that we cannot even recognize our own sinfulness. We have convinced ourselves of the lies of this world, God, that you have, that, that we can save ourselves, and we know that is not true in you, God. You have revealed the truth that we need you. We need your salvation. And God, we thank you that you have redeemed us. We thank you that you have saved us. We thank you for your grace, love, and mercy, God, that you have called us out to be obedient children of yours. And so, God, in this, we want to be the people that walk in the works you have prepared for us. We want to be the ones that the world looks to and says, who is their God? How wonderful he is. And, God, that requires boldness. God, that requires courage. That requires strength. But we can only get those things from you. We cannot build them up within ourselves. Because when we do, we try to build up our own glory. And so, God, I pray you, you embolden us by the power of your Spirit. You strengthen us by the power of your spirit. You prepare us for every good work that you have for us. So that way in this time, in this place, we would glorify and honor your name. 
So that way all the world would know who you are, God. That way all the world would turn to you and proclaim your righteousness. We thank you in your name. Amen. that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.